Well, our passage this morning comes from the book of 1 John. If you want to open there with me, we will be reading from 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Um, 1 John is towards the end of your Bible. And as you are turning there, you might be thinking, why are we in 1 John? Aren't we studying through the book of Genesis? And you are right. Uh, we are currently in a series working through the book of Genesis, but that's Rudolph's book, all right? Um, so uh, Dustin Rudolph is doing a deep dive. He's been studying it for a while. And so as we are talking about it, it's just easier for him since he's in that uh, context, thinking about Genesis a lot, for him to continue to preach through that. And then for me to go back to 1 John, which I started at the beginning of this year, if you were with us. So we, that's why we are picking up, not at the beginning of 1 John, but in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. And let me read that for us. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. You may be seated. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to be able to gather together to hear your word, to understand what John wrote to the churches and how that applies to us, Father. Lord, we do ask that your Holy Spirit would give us insight and give us understanding. And more than that, Lord, that as we receive your word, that we would be changed. Father, that you would give us soft hearts this morning. And that as we go out, we would not forget this word, but we would live according to what you have revealed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin, I, wanna, I want you to think about a time in your life when your faith was shaken. Perhaps this was because of some tragedy that you or a, fen, a friend faced, and this tragedy caused you to be shaken to question if God is really there. Or perhaps at a time in your life, there was some sort of spiritual leader, maybe a mentor, a pastor, or a friend that walked away from the faith, had some sort of moral failing, and it shook you in your faith. It started to make you question if what you've believed is true. Or for some, I think going off to college, having a professor challenge their faith, having new ideas thrown at them can cause them to really question and be shaken in what they believe. 
I know for me personally, uh, during my first two years of college was a time when I was really wrestling through some big questions. And it was not because one professor in, in particular, but it was because at that time I was questioning a lot of things. And I began to question, is what I've grown up with true? Is the faith that has been passed down to me real? Should I continue to hold to it or should I let it go and walk away? And this, this time period, when you're, when you're dealing with the shakiness, when something has rattled you, it can be a scary time. You need someone to come alongside you and to encourage you, to remind you of what is true. We need other Christians during the season. And our passage this morning comes from a letter by John written to a group of people that were going through this sort of situation. The letter of 1 John is written by the Apostle John, who is one of Jesus' closest disciples. Uh, John is also responsible for writing the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as well as the book of Revelation. And what we see in this letter is that John is writing to a group of churches that have gone through something traumatic. They have gone through an experience that has shaken them in their faith. And, and what we'll see this morning is that there was a group of people within this church that were spreading false doctrine. They were causing a lot of confusion for the believers. And then after causing all this trouble, claiming to be close to God, to have this deep fellowship with God, even though they were living in unrepentant sin, these false teachers finally left the church. So what, we're, what you're left with is this church in their wake, left with confusion and feeling rattled, not knowing if what they've been told from the beginning is true. As you can imagine what they must have been going through, anyone who's gone through some sort of church split can understand this feeling of being confused and shaken, wondering if, did we make the right decision? Should we have left also? What if what they were saying was credible? And so in response to this, John, who was a leader in the early church, wrote this letter. And his goal is to encourage the believers in their faith and straighten out some of the teaching that had been going around because of the false teachers. John wants to encourage the believers and help give them assurance. He wants to help them to have confidence that what they are holding to is the true faith that has been passed down. Since this is John's goal, the book of 1 John is a huge encouragement to anyone who is dealing with wrestling through their faith. So if that is you, if you find yourself in a place where you are questioning whether or not you have assurance, if you're questioning whether or not you have the Holy Spirit, I would encourage you to study through this book. Uh, take some time to read this book through on your own or maybe with a friend and ask God to give you assurance in your salvation. So, so that's the context. And now I want to kind of provide us with a little bit of the structure that we're going to see this morning. We're going to break the text into three sections. And in this, we're going to see that John's goal is to encourage the believers and help them not be deceived. John makes this really easy for us. We don't have to guess that this is his reason. And we see this in verse 26. So at the, the very last line of our passage this morning, we see that John writes this. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So John is telling them exactly why he wrote this, this letter. He does not want the believers to be deceived by the false teachers in the church. And so since that is John's goal, 
to help the believers not to be deceived, that's what we want our goal to be this morning, to understand his message. And so to do that, I have titled each one of our main points with do not be deceived. Hopefully, I'm going to make it really clear so that when you go out today and someone asks you, hey, what was that sermon about? And you're like, uh, oh, do not be deceived. That is John's goal. And so if you are taking notes, I'll give you the, the points here. Point number one is do not be deceived. True faith perseveres to the end. We'll see that in the first section. And in the next section, we'll see do not be deceived. True faith comes from the Holy Spirit. And then finally, we'll see that do not be deceived. True faith abides. And we'll start with this first point. And just a warning, this first point is the longest. Not all of them will be as long as this. And so this point is do not be deceived. True faith perseveres to the end. So let me, again, read that verse 18 and, and remind us of what John says at the beginning. He writes, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is, it is the last hour. So to understand John's argument here, we first need to understand some of the language that John is using. Uh, if you're like me, at first glance, this can kind of seem a little strange, right? John starts talking about it is the last hour, and then he goes on to say that there's Antichrist running around. Uh, so this, it sounds a little bit confusing, but as we get into it, we will understand what John is talking about. So I want to do two things as we begin. I want to understand what does it mean when John uses the word or the phrase last hour, and then we'll look at what does he mean by the, the phrase antichrist or the word antichrist. And I think when it comes to the phrase, it is the last hour, maybe a lot of us are, we would just naturally think of the last times. Well, John is probably referring to uh, the end times, the, the times when Jesus will come back. Perhaps John is talking about uh, the fact that Jesus will come back very soon, maybe in a matter of months or about a year, matter of years. But as you continue to read, you see that John is doing something different. He's using this term, last hour, but John is, is actually just referring to the age that he is in. He's referring to the church age. And this is something that we see a lot of New Testament authors do. They describe the time that they're writing in or the time that they're writing to their to other pastors in as the last days. So when John says the last hour, it's similar to how Peter talks about it as the last days. We also see in Luke's book of Acts that he writes about the last days and also in the letter to the Hebrews. And what is clear from all of these authors is that they are not speaking chronologically. So they do not mean that Christ will come back in just a matter of, uh, a matter of months or years. We know that because Christ himself was very clear that we will not know the date or time that he will return. So instead of thinking chronologically about the last times, these authors are speaking of time as it relates to redemptive history. So John and these other authors call the church age the final days or the final hour because it literally is the last time before Jesus returns. With regards to redemptive history, the only thing left to happen is for Christ to return. In redemptive history, we have already witnessed creation, fall, Christ's first coming, his death, his resurrection, and the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. All of those things have already taken place as you think about the larger story of redemption 
history and what God is doing. And so that is why John can say that it is the last hour. The only act of redemption left is for Christ to return. What that means then is John was in the last hour 2,000 years ago, and you and I are still in that last hour. It is a long hour, amen? Uh, we are both in the New Testament period of the church awaiting Christ's return. So as we read John and the other New Testament authors, it's helpful to remember that they are speaking simply about the church age. So next we need to understand John's use of the word antichrist here. And we see from the passage that John references the fact that these churches had heard that antichrist was supposed to come. But then John tells them that many antichrists have in fact already come. So what is John talking about here? And again, it can feel like John is talking about end times here. Uh, perhaps you've read the book of Revelation and you're thinking, is this what John is talking about? You might hear the word antichrist and think of some evil ruler who is going to cause all of us to get the mark of the beast. Perhaps an evil ruler who will rise up and lead a rebellion against God. And I'll be honest, I'm not sure if that's going to happen. That could happen, okay? But that's not what John is talking about here. Um, we know that from this passage that John is using the word antichrist to refer to these false teachers who have troubled the church. We see that from verse 19. Speaking about the antichrist, John says, they went out from us. The they that John is referring to are the antichrist. So what John is doing here is he's labeling these false teachers as antichrists. This is definitely not a kind label. This is not something you would want to be labeled or I would want to be labeled as. So instead of hearing that word antichrist and thinking of some evil beast end times, John wants us to understand that these antichrists are the false teachers. John is labeling the teachers as antichrists, and we know that he says many antichrists have already come. And, and calling, these, calling these false teachers, these people that have left the church, antichrists, is a pretty weighty accusation. accusation. Uh, John is not just referring to these people as misguided, um, misunderstood, but he's actually labeling them as antichrists. And John is not doing this lightly. He is, he's not using the word flippantly just because he's angry at them, but he's being purposeful. He's labeling them as false, these false teachers as antichrists to reveal to the church who these people actually are. So what John is doing is similar to when a pastor or a group of pastors come together to call out a false teaching that is going around. Unfortunately, as you might know, there are many false churches today. There are many who claim to be devout Christians and yet do not hold to the teaching of the Bible. And so as pastors, there are times when you need to call out these groups. While people have abused this, there are many who do this in a loving way. They're not trying to be mean-spirited or divisive, but they're looking to protect the sheep. As shepherds, pastors need to protect their flock, and sometimes this, mean, this means helping the flock recognize that there are wolves hiding in sheep's clothing. If the sheep do not recognize the wolves, they will be deceived, and they will be destroyed by the lies. And this is exactly what John is trying to prevent. In verse 22 of our passage, we see that John 
clearly shows what it means when he uses the term antichrist. So if you want to look down with me to verse 22, John is going to let us know what he means by this. He says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, he who denies the father and the son. No one who denies the son has the father. Whoever confesses the son has the father also. So what we see from this is that these false teachers, these people that John has labeled as antichrist, were denying that Jesus was the Messiah. They were denying Jesus as Messiah, and they were teaching false truths about Jesus' relationship with God the Father. So John writes to them to help clear this up, because this is serious. This is a primary issue. This is something that churches should divide over. We need to recognize those who are teaching wrong doctrine in order to keep it from spreading in the church. And that is John's goal here. He's labeling these false teachers as antichrist so that the church can recognize them. He is actually protecting the church in this way. You can think about it like this. John is saying, do not be deceived. These guys are not your friends. They were teaching false things about who Jesus was. They were teaching false things about Jesus' relationship with God the Father. Don't trust them. They are sheep. They are wolves in sheep clothing. And so that's helpful for us to understand now what that term means. Well, now that we have seen how John labels these false teachers, we can look at the next little part about why these false teachers, these antichrists, why they left the church. If you will look with me at verse 19, John writes, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So in this section, we see that John is doing something really important. John is answering a question that I think many believers have, many people in the church have today. Can a Christian lose their salvation? Were the people in the church at one time truly Christians that just over time slowly lost their faith? Or were they not Christians from the, from the beginning? And John's, John makes the answer very clear. His answer is that these people were never truly Christians. John writes that these false teachers left, and by leaving, that revealed something important about them. John shows that their leaving shows that they were actually never a part of the true church. The false teachers left the church because they were never truly a part of the church. So their leaving proved who they were all along. And I'm sure many people during this time would have believed that these false teachers were truly Christians. These false teachers might have even been baptized. They might have been serving in the church. But in the end, who they were was revealed. Why? Because they went out. Now, this is not to say that only those who remain in the church are truly saved. But what John is showing is that the church is evidence of who is truly in the faith. John is revealing that these people did not ever have true faith and lost it, but they didn't have it from the beginning. They were always sheep. Sorry, they were always wolves 
hiding in sheep's clothing. And so their leaving simply revealed who they were. But on the flip side of this, John is showing something very important. He's showing that true faith will persevere till the end. Those who are truly saved by Christ will not fall away. And this does not mean that they will be perfect, but it means that they will be faithful until the end. All true believers will continue to persevere in the faith until the very end. And we should be clear, true believers will not persevere by their own strength. That is not what we are saying. Rather, it is because Jesus is holding on to them. All true Christians are being held by Jesus. It is not their own power, but it is Christ working in them, and Christ will keep them from falling away. This is an important truth that we need to see this morning. Paul makes this really clear in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul writes, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is that if you are in Christ, it is not because of your own strength that makes that possible. If you are in Christ, it is because Christ has started a good work. He is faithful. It's his work. He will bring it to completion. And this is the promise that those believers needed to hear. You can imagine they would have been thinking, is, this, is something like this possible for me too? Am I going to fall away like these false teachers? But the New Testament again and again is clear. True believers will not fall away and it is not in their own power. One of my favorite passages of this is Romans 8. Paul shows us a long list and shows us that there is nothing that can separate us from Christ. He writes this, not tribulation, not distress, not persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, not even death or life or angels or rulers or things present or things to come or height or depth or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a long list, isn't it? I think it's pretty exhaustive. The New Testament shows us that there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from God, not even ourselves. Since we, did not, since we did not save ourselves, we cannot lose our salvation. It was a gift from God. He chose us. He rescued us. It is for his glory. And so we can have a confidence that he will not lose us. One more, just to drive this home. Uh, Jesus affirms this in, in the Gospel of John, starting in uh, ten twenty seven. This is what Jesus says. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is a beautiful reminder that true believers cannot lose their salvation because they're in God's hand. He is holding on to them. These false teachers walked away from the church and they walked away from their faith because they were never truly a part of it. And so in writing this, John's goal is to encourage the believers. Remember that he is writing to them to not be deceived. He is showing them, look, do not be deceived. These false teachers that left, they are actually antichrists. 
they left because they were not truly a part of the church to begin with. And how do we know that? Because all true believers persevere to the end. This is exactly what the believers need to hear. This would have been such a big encouragement to them after experiencing a traumatic split. And as we think about our own context, we can ask the question, how does this now apply to us? And I think if John were to write this letter to our church, it would be very similar. He would remind us that we are living in the last days. And that means that many false teachers are going to rise up. Many who call themselves Christians are going to be deceived and walk away. But his message is clear. Do not be deceived. People will fall away, but Christ will not lose any of his own. And we shouldn't be surprised by things that happen. We should actually expect them, and we should guard ourselves against it. I think sometimes the worst part of having people leave is that we're not expecting it. And it can cause us to, be, to question everything. We can fall into this idea that if we're doing the right thing, God is going to bless us and everything's going to be okay. But that is not the message of the New Testament, is it? It's actually the opposite. We learn that we should expect trials. We should expect false teachers to rise up. We should expect that people are going to walk away. But our job is the same. We are to be faithful to the end. This is something that Paul tells Timothy in his second letter to him. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, Paul writes this, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not, lover, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Paul is warning Timothy about people inside the church. He's going to say, he's warning him that hard times are coming. And remember that when he says end times, Paul is not talking to some future age, but he's warning Timothy about the present time. He's warning Timothy about things that are going to happen while he's a pastor. While, while Timothy is trying to serve faithfully as a pastor, these sort of people are going to enter the church. Since we are in that same age, we should not expect anything different. People are going to rise up and try to pull others away. People who you thought were Christians will be led away. But as for you, do not be deceived. God is in control. If you are in Christ, you can know that he will hold on to you until the very end. And just one more point of clarification before we move on to our next point. I want to I say really quickly what perseverance looks like. Perseverance, enduring, enduring to the end is not a passive thing on the part of the believer. Just, be, just because we absolutely trust that Christ is holding on to us, that does not mean that we do not participate in the work. So true perseverance means that the believer will pursue God for their entire life. They will strive to be holy and work to grow in their faith. While they are not perfect, the believer's life will be different. It will be marked by repentance and a life that is longing to grow in Christ. And that means for you and I, we are called to work hard. 
We are called to fight sin, to grow in our faith. We work with all of our strength, knowing that ultimately it is Christ working in us. I love how Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He writes, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Isn't that beautiful? Paul worked incredibly hard. He ran the race. He fought the good fight. And the whole time he knew, this is Christ working in me. And so I would encourage you, if you have a desire to grow in holiness, if you have a desire to fight sin, pray and ask God to stoke that fire, to give you more of that desire. We need God's grace to help us persevere. But I would also say that if you sense no desire to grow in holiness, if you have no desire to be more like Christ, to grow in connection with other believers, then you might not be a Christian. And I would encourage you to pray that God would give you that desire. That is a desire that comes only from him. And so if you realize you're in a period of your life where you do not desire that, the answer is not to get busier, to work harder. It is to pray that God would give you that desire and give you a heart that loves him. We can now move on to our second point. And this is, do not be deceived. True faith comes from the Holy Spirit. We'll pick up in verse 20. John writes, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So in this section, we see that John begins with a contrast. While he has just been writing about these false teachers, the ones that he describes as antichrist, he now begins to speak of the true believers. He begins with, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. John is reminding, reminding all true believers that they are not like the false teachers. They are different because they have been given the Holy Spirit. That is what John means when he says anointed by the Holy One. He's referring to how all true believers are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is not something that we earn. This is not something we work for, but it is a gift of God. And it is a seal, as Peter tells us, it's a seal for the day of redemption. So another contrast that John makes here is that these true believers know the truth. Unlike the false teachers that are caught up in lies because of, uh, because of the, the world, these true believers have the spirit and they are able to distinguish between the truth and the lies. And this is what the Old Testament reading from Jeremiah was pointing to. So the prophet Jeremiah was talking about a day when God would pour out his Holy Spirit and that believers would have God's law written on their heart. Right? If you remember, as Christian read that for us, it talked about how they would no longer need for other people to teach them because they would know God and have God's law written on their heart. This is referring to the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit, we are just like everyone else. Everyone else. Without the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are not able to distinguish between lies and truth. But God gives us the Spirit as a gift. And the Spirit enables, enables us to see truth. Now, 
This does not mean that a true believer with the Spirit will never be tricked. But ultimately, we know that God gives us the Holy Spirit that, so that we can see the gospel. We can see with eyes of faith, and we can understand what Christ has done for us. Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, for those who do not have the anointing of the Holy One, the gospel message is foolish. It doesn't make sense. Because they do not have the Holy Spirit, they cannot see the cross clearly. But for those whom God has rescued and called to himself, he has given us eyes of faith. By the Spirit, we are able to see the beauty of the cross. We are able to see that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so again, John's message is clear. Do not be deceived. True faith comes from the Holy Spirit. The false teachers left because ultimately they did not have that spirit. John is reminding the believers that that is not the case with you. You have the Holy Spirit. This is a reminder that they would have needed. They have been made new. They have God's law written on their hearts and they can distinguish between truth and lies. And so as we think about what this means for us today, we have to be reminded that we have that same spirit. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living inside you. This is something we so easily forget. The Bible writes that we are the temple of God, God actually dwelling with his people. Do we remember that? Do we take advantage of that truth? Bible says that we have the same power living in us that rose Jesus from the dead. Are we living that way? As I was preparing for this sermon and reading over this text, I was thinking about how easy it is for me to go on autopilot. How easy it is for me to forget the amazing power that God has given me. Forget that the Holy Spirit is living inside of me, that when I'm Faced with temptations, he's right there to give me self-control. That when I in, endure trials, he's there to strengthen me. When I'm frustrated, he can give me patience. That is a beautiful reminder that all of us need. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. He lives within us. We can access that power. Now, finally, point number three is do not be deceived. True faith abides. We will begin in verse 24. We're skipping down to verse 24 since we already looked at the other section where John talked about who the Antichrists are. John writes, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So in this passage, we see John make another comparison. Although the false teachers had left the church, they did not remain in the church or in the truth, John is saying, you abide. That word abide means continue in, remain in, dwell in. You can think about the gospel of John chapter 15 where Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me, abide in me. These false teachers did not abide in the faith. They did not remain. And John is calling the believers to abide. He uses the phrase, what you heard from the beginning, to refer to the gospel. The gospel message 
is the, the message that was preached to these believers at the very beginning. It was the message that the apostles brought to the church or to the town that caused people to believe and for the church to be planted. The message, the gospel message came first, and that's why John can say, let what you heard from the beginning. And John is saying, do not leave this gospel message that we taught to you from the very beginning. Do not get caught up in fancy ideas that lead you away from the original message. There are so many teachings and ideas out there that pose as Christian, and yet they're counterfeit. And John is saying, this is not for you. Do not be deceived by those things, but instead remain in what you heard from the beginning. After this, John tells the believers that if they let the gospel message abide in them, then they will also abide in the Son and the Father. John is showing that the way we have access to the Father is through Christ. And the way that we have access to Christ is through the gospel message. There is no other way. We do not need to take some pilgrimage. We do not need to hike a mountain to find some sacred relic. We have access to the Son and to the Father through the gospel message. Through believing the message of the gospel and remaining in it, we can have confidence that we are in Christ. This is why Paul can write in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel message is the power of God, and that's why John does not want his believers to walk away from it. Don't wander off to other myths, to other ideas. Remain in the gospel. False teachers, the false teachers in the church were not satisfied by the gospel message. They wanted to move on past it. Perhaps they got bored with the simple message of the gospel. It wasn't enough for them. Maybe it wasn't relevant for them or palatable for them in their time and their context. And so they moved on from it. They did not abide in it or let the gospel abide in them. John is showing that that is not what true believers are to do. We are to let the gospel abide in us. And this looks like holding on to the gospel. It looks like reminding yourself of the gospel. It looks like teaching it to your kids, to speaking about it. Do not add anything to it or take anything away from it. The Bible has made it clear. There are so many wonderful passages in the Bible that talk about what the gospel is. And one of my favorite comes from the book of Colossians. Colossians 1, 22, 21 through 22. Listen to how Paul writes about the gospel. He says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That is the message of the gospel. Although we were sinners, while we were rebels, deserving of death, Jesus has reconciled us by taking our place, dying the death that we deserved, and rising again. But it doesn't stop there. Notice that it said that he clothes us in his righteousness. Jesus actually takes his righteousness and puts us on us so that we can stand before God holy and blameless. So we go from rebels deserving death to sons and daughters of the king. That is the message we proclaim. We are far more sinful than we had ever feared. But God is more loving and merciful 
more and more merciful than we could have ever hoped for. John finishes this section with a wonderful promise. He writes, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. John is wrapping up this section by reminding the church that what God has promised. He's reminding them and encouraging them to abide in the gospel because it leads to eternal life. And this is what we have to look forward to. Yes, we will experience pain. Yes, we will be discouraged when false teachers rise up and people leave the church. But that is temporary. All of that is fleeting. We hold to the hope that has been promised. The hope that because we are in Christ, because Christ has rescued us and given us the Holy Spirit, we will one day see God face to face. We will one day be in heaven with God forever. Isn't that a good promise? So as we wrap up this section this morning, I want to remind you of what we have seen John call the church to. The call from John to the church is to not be deceived. We are in the last days. We should be ready when false teachers creep into our churches and lead many astray. But this should not shake us. Don't let this shake us in our faith. We should remember that all true believers will persevere until the end. True faith is not our own, but it comes from the Holy Spirit. And true faith will abide. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these promises. Lord, it is your work. You are moving, Lord. You have rescued us and redeemed us. And Father, we thank you by your grace, you are holding on to us. Lord, I thank you for giving us this time to see your promises. And now I ask, Lord, as we respond in worship and we respond by going out this morning, would you build us up? Give us faith so that we can access the gift of the Holy Spirit that you've given us, Lord. Allow us not to fall into autopilot and just go through the motions, Lord, but allow us to grow in our faith, to put to death our sin, Father. I thank you that you've protected our church at this time kept our church from wolves, Lord. Allow us to use this time to grow together, to prepare for the trials ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name.